This is Module 2's audio lecture, and we're going to jump right in. Chapter 2, Section 1, City-States of Ancient Sumer. So we talked in the previous lecture about how a lot of um, human beings started to evolve and began to settle, right, going from the Paleolithic period to the Neolithic period. Today we're going to talk about one of the primary regions where uh, man started to settle in Western civilization, and this region is called the Fertile Crescent. The location is roughly between modern-day Iraq and Turkey. Um, if you look on your maps that are provided for you online, you can kind of see it kind of have a, like a, a crescent shape uh, along the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So those are the two big features that you should know about the Fertile Crescent. What makes up the Fertile Crescent um, is the two rivers there. So Tigris is spelled T-I-G-R-I-S. And Euphrates is E-U-P-H-R-A-T-E-S. Um, now, in between those two rivers, that's where most of the early civilizations are going to start propping up. As we talked about, many river civilizations are going to be growing along the river. So that's where the word Mesopotamia comes from. Mesopotamia in Greek uh, means between two rivers. So when we talk about um, city-states or these civilizations, you can think of it generally as ancient Mesopotamia or Mesopotamian civilizations. There's many of them. This is going to be such a hot spot for many people. There's going to be a revolving doors of a variety of different civilizations, and the first of which we will talk about and discuss are going to be uh, the Sumerians. So there are going to be some early obstacles to this civilization, one in which are the rivers themselves, although they're going to provide a lot of water and ability to trade uh, throughout this region, they're quite capricious or they're quite turbulent and violent. And because of this, there's going to be a lot of flooding. And so the early Sumerians would have to deal with this uh, geographical feature and quickly learned how to channel it. So who were the Sumerians? Well, they developed along a city called Sumer within Mesopotamia, or those two rivers. But it's a misnomer to assume that the entire civilization was within one city or one specific section of those two rivers. At one point, Sumeria is going to generally be a collection of 12 separate city-states. Now, all of these city-states are going to constantly be battling for control of land and, of course, water. And over time, people are going to turn to strong war leaders to protect them from rival city-states. So this is where we develop the Sumerian hierarchy. At the top, you have the ruling family or the warriors, led by leading officials or even high priests that are going to be designed to pray to the gods to stop the flooding or mitigate the flooding. Remember, I told you there's an association in the previous module uh, between government and religion, especially in ancient civilizations. The next on the ladder are lesser priests and people who write, known as scribes. We have merchants and people who make stuff, known as artisans. Below them are going to be the peasant farmers, and below them, of course, are slaves, slaves of which are going to be known as contraband or property. As a result of war, it was very, very commonplace for the losers to become the slaves of the victors. So this is basically the hierarchy that you'll find in most Sumerian city-states. What is interesting is where does woman place on uh, this hierarchy? As we talked about, most of the societies are going to be patriarchal, um, meaning uh, dictated and dominated by men. 
Now, what's interesting about this ancient civilization is that women had a pretty high role, or at least had more progressive role as compared to other civilizations. We know that because of their honoration of goddesses. The fact that they have deities that are female or gods that are female might indicate how men or society in general viewed women in their culture. Some were even allowed to read and write based on female written songs about husbandry. And even on rare occasion, a woman may have inherited property in this society. However, I have to tell you, generally, women did not share the same legal rights as men, but some from the upper class most likely learned how to read, write, and supervise tasks. And as I said before, inherit property. So these are some of the things that you need to learn about in Sumerian uh, society. Moving on to Sumerian religion. They were polytheistic, meaning they had a belief in many gods, and the gods and goddesses had human-like qualities that usually reflected uh, their own experiences in daily life, usually around, structured around the river. In order to honor these gods, Sumerians built structures called ziggurats to keep them content or happy. They dedicated these ziggurats to the chief god or goddess, and they were going to hold several ceremonies and rituals at these ziggurats in order to please the gods. Remember, religion at this point is part government to keep people in control, and it's also part science. There is no such thing as observable science or the scientific method at this point. Most of the natural disasters, a lot of the Sumerians have surmised it was a result of an angry god or goddess, and the ziggurats were built in uh, response to that. They also have a very grim view of the afterlife, probably because of the death toll was so high as a result of the river. They have an epic of Ginglamesh, which is a poem that we often use as evidence or uh, of, of what they're feeling and thinking and uh, what they're valuing during their society. And this is just basically a quote from this epic. The place where they live on dust their food is mud, they see no light, living in blackness, on the door and doorbelt, deeply settled dust. So this is a quote describing the view of afterlife. So we get a little bit of a glimpse of how the Sumerians viewed their gods and goddesses. Because the rivers were capricious, so were their gods. By 3200 BC, the Sumerians are going to go and provide another achievement. They're going to invent the earliest known form of writing known as cuneiform. This is a series of wedge marks on clay tablets. The primary purpose of cuneiform was economic. It was to uh, keep track or tally of any products that the Sumerians had. And later on, as society grew more complex, they're going to use this form of writing for religious purposes, for writing myths, for uh, making other economic exchanges, such as business co uh, contracts, and of course, creating laws. So the first uh, cuneiform was designed for economic purposes, and then later on will have more uses uh, as we see it. The end of Sumerian civilization. At some point in 2500 BC, neighboring civilizations will conquer Mesopotamia. I told you this region is a revolving door for many city-states, so we can get some sort of sense based on war records or destruction of pottery or other artifacts that the Sumerians will be conquered. 
Uh, by 1900 BC, Sumerian civilization will be completely replaced by other civilizations and empires that we will talk about later on throughout this lecture. The legacy, of course, that you should kind of keep in mind, the greatest hits of Sumeria, you should just keep in mind that they're the ones who came up with the first earliest known uh, form of writing known as cuneiform, and that form of writing will be adopted by neighboring societies such as the Akkadians, the Babylonians, and of course the Assyrians. They're going to make advances in astronomy and mathematics. They're going to make a number system based on six. They're going to divide the hour into 60 minutes, and the circle will be expressed in 360 degrees. So here's two achievements that we can see uh, that has present-day value for us as human beings. They're the ones who kind of also came up with an early form of time. They're also going to found a basic fundamental um, principles or, or elements of algebra and geometry, two forms of math that are needed for engineering. They both have to deal with space and measurement, and these are going to be very, very, very beneficial for other uh, other civilizations later on. Think of every time when a civilization develops some sort of achievement, it will be co-opted or taken over or culturally diffused by another city, state, or civilization. Chapter 2, Section 2, Invaders, Traders, and Empire Builders. So when Sumeria gets conquered, they kind of get conquered by a man named Sargon, and he's going to be the ruler of the Akkad Empire, and he's going to conquer the city-states of Sumer, and will form and establish an early system of bureaucracy, which is a very organized way of ruling. Because an empire is usually consisting of large swaths of territory populated by diverse peoples, uh, many times rulers are going to appoint governors to run specific provinces within the empire. Think of it like our country. We have one president, we have 50 states. He rules the entire nation. However, there are governors that are running specific states because the president could not possibly rule and enforce all the laws of every single state within the nation. So he needs help. Bureaucracy will be um, existing through a series of departments, through a series of governors and governorships, and it's a very, very usual way of how emperors run their territories. But like most empires, this empire will shortly phase out soon after Sargon's death, and all of those leaders are going to start squabbling for uh, power. If a ruler does not create a sustainable replacement for him or her, usually these empires will crumble. So keep that in mind as we go on and we talk about other civilizations. The next empire that comes in is the more well-known one, and it's going to be run by a man named Hammurabi, and he will be ruler of the city-state known as Babylon. In 1790 BC, he's going to assume power over the Mesopotamian region, and he's going to have a long-lasting contribution. He's going to create a very strict, rigid set of laws known as the Hammurabi's Code of Law. This is the earliest known codified set of laws. What do I mean by codified? Organized and written down and standardized, standardly practiced throughout this empire. It's not like laws weren't made before this, but the fact that he codified it and put it in writing shows that this is a man who understands 
that people come and go, empires rise and fall, and in order to keep the Babylonian Empire running, he needs to establish some sort of rules. These codes are going to be harsh, yet just according to ancient standards. By modern standards, if you look into the code uh, in your activity, you will be horrified to see what are some of the punishments of the transgressions that happen, such as theft or um, you know infidelity. Um, but it's going to be the first attempt by a ruler to codify law into writing, and it will establish early principles of civil law or law just relating to other citizens. The laws are going to talk about anything ranging from business contracts, property inheritance, taxes, marriage, and divorce. Some laws are going to allow women to own property and pass it on to their children. So to take the Sumerian tradition and kind of apply it in the Babylonian sense. Even allowed in some cases for women to freely divorce husband if the woman was found to be blameless by the courts. So although this is a progressive measure by the Babylonians, um, many times the courts run by men in a patriarchal society would usually find some sort of blame for the women. However, we also have to acknowledge that these Mesopotamians, the Babylonians in particular, were trying to evolve and develop into a bigger and better society than that of their predecessors, the Sumerians. But perhaps his most famous set of laws are going to be in the criminal law realm, which are going to be kind of strict, but pretty equal in terms of punishment and the crime that was being done. For example, in many cases, if one man of the same class is going to accidentally or purposely blind another man, according to Hammurabi's code of law, it is proper to take out that the eye of that person who kind of assaulted the man. And because of this gruesome, however equal, way of punishment, we are going to have that cliche phrase, an eye for an eye, that many people are going to say, even in our daily nomenclatures. So I recommend highly to examine these codes of laws for yourself and pick which one is probably the most uh, horrifying to you. Other accomplishments by Hammurabi. He's going to improve a system of irrigation. He's going to organize a well-trained army to keep his empire going. He's going to repair many of the temples and ziggurats that we've talked about later. And he's going to promote a new god called Marduk. He's going to be the patron god of his city-state, Babylon, over older Sumerian gods. Hammurabi will have a significant influence over religion, uh, over his conquered peoples. However, his reign is going to last all the way from 14 BC when the Hittites are going to be pushed out of Asia Minor into Mesopotamia, and they're going to bring their knowledge of how to extract iron from ore. There are these tools and weapons that they're going to make are going to be made from iron, which was much stronger and durable than those made out of bronze and copper by the Sumerians and Babylonians. And because of this, they're going to be able to establish an empire. However, within 200 years, the Hittite Empire will collapse in 1200 BC. The Hittites will try keeping this technology, iron making, a secret. But the Hittite ironsmiths will be leaking out information to neighboring societies by serving as their blacksmiths. So this is an example of cultural diffusion. Information will then spread from Asia to Africa and Europe that will bring about what historians call the Iron Age. So we blame the Hittites for their particular method of creating iron-made weaponry. 
1350 BC, the Assyrians are going to also come around Mesopotamia and establish an empire by wielding these iron-forged weapons, possibly because they stole this technology from the Hittites. In 1100 BC, they're going to begin to expand into Mesopotamia. They're going to be developing a reputation for being the most feared warriors in history. Despite their feared reputation, however, Assyrians are going to be encouraging a well-ordered society within their empire. They're going to use riches acquired from war and trade to construct well-planned cities. They're going to become the first rulers to develop extensive laws regulating life within the royal household. For example, women of the palace were constrained to certain sections of the palace and had to wear veils when they appeared to the public. The Assyrian king, Assurbanipal, is going to be founding, founder of one of the world's first libraries. So this warlike society is also going to be one of the fundamental societies for libraries, which we will later talk about. The Babylonian Empire will return shortly after the Assyrians take over in 1625, and they're going to reestablish and be revived by a ruthless king called Nebuchadnezzar, N-E-B-U-C-H-A-D-N-E-Z-Z-A-R. They're going to quickly order the construction of a defensive moat and a brick wall that surrounds the main city, which will be 85 feet thick, nine sold solid gateways allowing people to pass through the wall, and they're going to enlarge the city ziggurat and restore the temple honoring the Babylonian god Marduk. So there's going to be a little back and forth, as I told you, it's a little bit of a revolving door, and what really kind of stops these rival city-states from conquering each other is always a bigger fish. And this is when the Persians come, and they're going to establish an even bigger empire. In 539 BC, the Babylonian army will fall to Persian armies under the leadership of Cyrus the Great, C-Y-R-U-S. Cyrus and his successors went on to build the largest empire yet seen. Persians are going to eventually control territory spanning from Asia Minor to India. Generally speaking, Persians will adopt a policy of tolerance towards the peoples they conquered and respected the customs of the diverse groups of people they ruled over. This is important because tolerance is going to be one of the best ways that the Persians are able to maintain control of their large uh, territory populated by many people. If you allow them to not be upset, they're less likely to rebel against you and more likely to pay taxes to your leader. From 522 to 486 BC, the Persian Empire will be unified under a man named Emperor Darius I. He will, like other empires before him, establish a bureaucracy. He will divide empires into provinces called a satrapy, and each of the satrapies are going to be held run by a governor called a satrap, a uh, excuse me, S-A-T-R-A-P, and each satrapy had to pay taxes based on its wealth. So the Persians are going to take the system of bureaucracy and make it more refined. They're going to establish a system of roads in order to maintain unity of empire and encourage trade. They're going to improve economic ways of life. Darius himself are going, is going to set up a common set of weights and measures for economic contracts and economic exchanges. 
for uh, traders. He's going to also encourage the use of coins during this time. Most people throughout the empire still had to rely on what is called a barter economy, but many merchants and traders began to adhere to a monetary economy in the main cities. A barter economy is an economy where trade is based on object to object. I give you one chicken for, you know, you know, one or, you know, two cups of your milk. Uh, Money will be the way in which many people are going to be conducting trade. Why is that a big deal to make an emphasis on? Well, if there's a standardized form of currency, more people will be able to trade. If it was just bartering, some people in some villages might value objects differently than other villages. By creating coinage, it's going to set up a way to standardize trading practices. That is a very important thing that you should keep in mind. New religion will take hold during the Persians. This religion will be called Zoroastrianism, Z-O-R-A-S-T-R-I-A-N-I-S-M. 600 BC, the Persian thinking thinker Zoroaster will found this new religion and help unite the empire. Remember, religion is a really good way of also keeping cohesion within an empire. There is a correlation between government and religion. They're both set up to kind of make people obey. He's going to reject Zoroaster, the old Persian gods, and he will teach a single wise god, Ahura Mazda, will, that will rule the world. So we're beginning to see the development of monotheistic religion as opposed to polytheistic. This god, Ahura Mazda, A-H-U-R-A-M-A-Z-D-A was in a constant battle with the Prince of Lies and Evil known as Ahriman, A-H-R-I-M-A-N, and the people of Persia would have to choose a side to support. So not only this man, Zoroaster, is going to develop one of the earliest monotheistic religions, but it's going to have a certain duality between good and evil, and the idea of choice And free will is going to be a concept in this uh, society where most early polytheistic religions are going to think of many gods and some sort of fate. The Persians are going to see uh, the universe in terms of duality, good versus evil. And you could see a little elements of this in our religion today or many Western religions today. Zoroaster will explain that Ahura Mazda would eventually win the war and people would be judged for their actions in what we call a final judgment day. So you kind of see some elements to this in Judaism and in Christianity, religions that we'll discuss later on. Other later religions, as I said before, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, will also stress the concept of final judgment day to their faithful as well. The final uh, civilization that I kind of want to talk about that dominated the Mesopotamian uh, region is called the Phoenicians. And they're going to be known as the carriers of the civilization primarily because of their ability to sail and trade to various parts of the ancient world. They're going to be the ones really responsible for uh, for cultural diffusion. Uh, Some civilizations will make their contributions – not by establishing empires, but by establishing trade. And that is exactly what the Phoenicians did. They're not going to be big, um, large 
or warlike like the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians, but they're going to be a small group of peoples that are going to travel along the coastal cities uh, along the Mediterranean coast, which is present-day Syria, Lebanon, and of course the island of Cyprus. They're going to develop a reputation for being expert sailors and traders. They're going to make glass from coastal sand. They're going to extract purple dye known as Tyrian purple from sea snails, which is going to be a really, really uh, important commodity or really valuable commodity for the ancient world. It's going to sell for a lot. They are also going to establish colonies along the northern coast of Africa as trading posts. Some Phoenicians are going to have been known to even sail as far as the British Isles, which is all the way across the continent of Europe. As I said before, they're going to be known as the carriers of civilization. They're going to spread Middle Eastern civilization around the Mediterranean, particularly affecting the Greeks and the Egyptians as a result of their sailing and trade. We will talk about them later. And of course, the Phoenicians are going to improve writing by replacing cuneiform with an alphabet. So they're going to start to write down symbols instead of having these tablet codes set up. It takes too long to kind of put on a, on a board to kind of imprint, they're going to uh, have a quicker, shorter way of communicating, and they're going to have one of the earliest known alphabets. I have to stress that this alphabet had only 22 symbols and only stood for consonant sounds. The Greeks will later improve on this Phoenician alphabet by adding vowels, A-E-I-O-U, which are softer words and also easier. If you think about it, consonants have more harsher um, pronunciations, and we're beginning to see not only societies uh, take what other previous societies have learned or have achieved, but also make it faster and more efficient. And like writing, language is going to be a very good way of conducting trade with other peoples. So mainly it's because of economic reasons why language and writing and a lot of these attributions are going to be such a big deal. And with that, that ends Module 2 lecture. I will see you in Module 3.